Hello and welcome to Breakfast with the Boss, the podcast that discovers how our leaders went from the classroom to the boardroom and what it means to be the boss. I'm Natalie Campbell. I'm Martin Dixon. And this week we're in the dugout. Joining us for breakfast is the former manager of Doncaster Bells and now specialist England coach, Emma Coates. Emma began playing football at the age of four and was scouted to play for Leeds United, where she played until she was 21. Despite being a gifted footballer, she always had her sights set on management. She took her coaching badges during her teenage years, and by 25, she was managing Doncaster Bells in the top flight of women's football. After a year and a half in charge, she was scouted by the FA to come and join their setup, where she now works as a specialist coach for the youth teams. Emma. Thank you very much for joining us for breakfast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what does a typical morning look like uh, for you? Um, I wouldn't really say there is a, a typical morning. Uh, my job at the minute is really varied. So whether that be sort of on camp, working with players, whether that be going and meeting clubs, um, IDing the players, doing some admin work, some game analysis. So that's a really good thing about my role is the fact that it's so varied. <laughs> And you're travelling a lot around the UK? That's correct, yeah. So I'm based um, I'm based between York and Leeds. Um, and obviously, sort of the, the, the perks of being in a national role is that there is lots of places to travel, lots of clubs to go and visit. Um, so with that comes lots of time in the car or on a train. <laughs> Great. Um, take us back to the beginning. What, what was life like growing up? Um, life was good. Uh, so I grew up in a small village just outside York. Um, I came from quite an active family, so my dad um, is a professional football coach, my brother played um, at a decent level, um, so sport was I guess always in my life growing up. Um, we, we were quite active horse riders, believe it or not, we, had, we, we bred horses for a while, um, which is something people are quite surprised by actually. Um, you weren't tempted to become a No, a my, my dad always said if you fall off, that'll be the end of your football. So by, <laughs> so I had to make a decision. So unfortunately, uh, I didn't proceed with the horse riding. Um, my my parents uh, have been super supportive of my career. And they, they got divorced when I was young. That was quite tough. Um, but it hasn't sort of caused any problems or anything that got in the way of sort of where I wanted to go or um, any challenges really. Now, starting playing at four, that's an incredibly young age. Um, what, what, uh, what lies behind that? Was your father a big influence in that? Yeah, huge. So it was mainly my, my dad and my brother, and it was mainly the fact that I wouldn't say we were the most well-off when we were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the cheapest childcare going to work with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so I was more a product of uh, not having a childminder to go to. Um, and it was, you know, mum, can I go to work with dad then, rather than go shopping with you and gran um, in, the school, in the school holidays or, you know, before we started school. So that was where it started. Um, so when I was four, I was, I was actually playing with boys who were probably age six and up. Um, and luckily my dad was the type of bloke that just sort of threw me in and didn't really care <laughs> um, in the sense that obviously I was female and, and a little bit younger which is I think is sort of I enjoyed that challenge um, I sort of enjoyed showing the boys up a little bit um, and so yeah that's where it started. Great, um, your talent showed very early how did your parents manage the the fine line between being pushy and encouraging for your talent? Yeah I think I think 
what was really good is the fact that because my dad worked in football, he had a he had a lot of knowledge in terms of um, what was too much and what was enough, and obviously the pressure. Um, I think as well because there there wasn't necessarily um, a path for players at that point. Mm. That was when you know playing football was was a hobby at the time and one where I, I'd have liked to continue it for longer when I was younger. Looking back, um, but Dad always said, right, if you love football so much, then stay in it but obviously there's other elements of the game so I was learning football while I was playing it but always with the view of that there was a, a other parts of the game that I wanted to go into and lucky enough my um, uncle was an ex-professional as well so there was lots of knowledge from my mum's side of the family around what it took and you know I think there was lots of Stephen trained two or three nights a week I was training two or three nights a week so there was lots of car journeys and <laughs> lots of commutes for, for the parents uh, but mum and dad as I say were, were really supportive my, my granddad in particular um, shared a lot of those journeys <laughs> um, Now you got scouted at the age of eight yes. to play for Leeds United yeah. um, that's pretty incredible in itself how did that come about? Yeah so that came about for two reasons really so I was actually playing for the local boys team Cotman Thorpe I think it was like under must have been under eights um, and it sounds really big headed but I was probably one of the best players um, I'm still friends with a lot of the boys that we played with and even they used to say say you know you're definitely one of the strongest players but I was always on the B team and I was always on the bench and I wasn't playing um, and obviously my parents got a little bit frustrated and they'd, they'd gone through this for about two years until basically my dad had finally said something to the coach and his remark back was along the lines of if she was a boy she'd probably be captain of the A team which was a little bit of a red rag. I, I never knew that until I was about 16 and my parents told me and that was when um, dad basically used a couple of his contacts to get people down to look at me and I was also doing a lot of after school clubs um, and through people that I think it was my sister's friend was playing for Leeds at the time and dad knew a couple of the coaches and that's what got me involved initially and sort of coming and looking at me so it was a little bit of luck from quite a, a negative situation that at the time I say my, my parents chose not to tell me and and that was playing alongside boys at Leeds that's that, well yeah so that was playing um, so I initially started in a grassroots boys team and then when I went to Leeds that was actually um, it was one of the very first girls centre of excellences um, so obviously now you look at the RTC programme it's incredible I was quite lucky in the fact that my um, I guess age of players was the first centre of excellence so it was actually in an old girls team which I didn't at the time sort of knew existed <laughs> I thought girls teams would have been you know just um, a weaker grassroots team turns out there were some uh, pretty incredible players <laughs> uh, and did you get stick playing football as, as a girl growing up uh, yeah so I got um, bullied in primary school for it um, obviously I was friends with the boys didn't really have many um, friends that were girls at primary school I used to dress in you know tracksuits all the time and I refused to you know, wear dresses or skirts, and m as much as my mum tried, it just wasn't for me. Um, lucky, the fact that, again, parents never really forced me into that, were quite happy, the fact I was a bit of a tomboy. Um, I'd say that what happened at primary school, and I wouldn't say it was horrific bullying, um, it was just teasing, name-calling, you know, you play with the boys, or, um, you know, playing football means you're gay, all that sort of stuff, and that started at a really young age. Um, I was quite resilient enough just to knock that off, and I think, being friends with the boys and because I was good the boys helped me and sort of said a lot of things back to the girls um, and then because I'd obviously was playing at a decent level when I got to secondary school and people started understanding it tended to stop um, it was more when people I think didn't really understand 
And I suppose during that time, there's been a, a revolution in the approach to, to, to women's football. Absolutely. Like the, the opportunities that I think are there for female players now. And it's mainly because of players from generations before me have pushed the boundaries and have, you know, given up their free time and worked incredibly hard to, to you know, get a little bit more professional, a little bit... Um, uh, you know, getting paid to play and uh, full-time opportunities from people giving up and sacrificing quite a lot. So um, it's something that I look back now and I'm thinking, God, if I'd have the opportunities that kids have now, potentially my, my path might have been slightly different. In, in what way? I'm not sure if I'd have been a little bit more invested into playing. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. Um, and then we're sort of down to the line of the you just can't give up all your time for free and um, money's not gonna sorry football's not gonna pay the mortgage and that sort of stuff and I guess that's when my parents switched me on at quite a young age um, and I'm also when I got a little bit older I realized that well, it's more my teenage years that waking up and going early and going to the gym before school for playing just wasn't for me either <laughs> um, so it's multifaceted I guess do you think films like um uh, Bendit, like Beckham, have, have helped change attitudes. Oh, definitely. I, lo I love that film. <laughs> definitely that and, and definitely just more media. I actually think social media has been, been a huge part and the introduction of that, being able to find things out. So when I was younger, you couldn't find out, albeit the Premier League, you know, there was full-time clubs when I was growing up in the early 90s, um, but you just didn't have access to it and there was no way to find things out. Um, whereas nowadays, just how instantly available everything is, um, you know, I guess lets people see what's going on and has that connection. I haven't yet asked you one of the most important questions, which is where did you play? What position? Oh, well, I don't think we ever found my best position. I was left footed, so I always got put at left back, but I couldn't defend. <laughs> <laughs> so I played a variety. I played every position except from goal. Um, started off as a left back, played as a deep holding midfield role. Um, I'd probably say that was maybe my, my stronger position. As I say, I wouldn't really say I was a good defender. I didn't have any pace to go forward, but I was quite tidy on the ball. So. so what was it that attracted you to the management side of the game? Was it your father's advice to look for another another outlet? I think so. I think it was one of those where I, I didn't really, I wasn't really motivated by anything outside football. So... Um, when I was 14, I did a, a JSLA course where I did some volunteering um, through the school. Sorry, JSLA? Junior Sport Leadership Awards. Yeah. Um, so that was something that I guess was my, my first maybe formal entry point into coaching, albeit I'd been to work with, with my dad and, and seen that. And it was something where just being around people really excited me, um, sit me down, you know, I always thought an office job would be a bit like school. You just sort of sat down all day, tapping away. And uh, again, it didn't excite me. I was quite lucky when I was 16, I started doing my coaching badges. And I, I, through my career, I've worked with so many different parts of the games. I've worked with grassroots five to 11 year olds. I've worked in youth academy teams. And by exploring all the different, I guess, areas of coaching, I knew that working in the the upper end of ages um, or senior football or the professional development phase was for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it was just through having a look and having a go. <laughs> but you obviously enjoy leading people and guiding people and those are, those are, uh, are not that common skills. How do you, how do you feel about um, leadership? Yeah, I think leadership's an interesting thing because I think um, there's a real level of um, 
authenticity that comes with leadership. And I don't think it's something that can be defined as this is leadership. I think it's a skill in the fact that good leaders have several different different caps that they can put on at different times and it's very contextual um, and I feel again that's something that I've learned over time through being coached and managed by good leaders myself um, through learning the game and studying and I guess being on the receiving end going Do you know what? I didn't like how that leader acted in in that situation so I'm not going to go and do that so I guess I guess I am a leader um, yeah um, but I guess I do it in my own little way <laughs> Um, let's go to the Doncaster Bells. Mm-hmm. When you took over, what, what state was the club in? Um, it was mixed. So obviously I'd been in, involved at Doncaster um, for uh, about 18 months to two years before I was manager. Um, I was I started volunteering there, um, mainly just to stretch myself. And the club was the club had been through a turbulent time before I got involved. So there was the decision made by the league that the club were already relegated before the season even begun. So they effectively played a full year um, knowing that they were going to get relegated. There's nothing they can do. So after that season, that was when I got involved with the manager under Gordon and the club started an element of, of rebuilding. They brought a lot of new people in, new chair came in. Um, they got to a point, obviously they got promoted. So I was uh, working with Glenn at the time when they got promoted and the club was in a good place. Um, when we did get promoted, I think that was at the time that the, the, the league and the game had grown at its fastest point and a small independent club financially really struggled mm-hmm. because the size of contracts went up. Um, so albeit we had a, a really good philosophy and really good people, it was a real challenge financially to cope with the demands of the game and the growth of the you, game. You were related to the main Doncaster team, but not... But not formally part of them. That's that right? correct. So Doncaster uh, Rovers Bells is a fully independent club. They've got no ties. So, you know, they we had to pay for the use of keep mail. We had to pay for the training facilities, which a lot of clubs got sort of in kind, the ones that were formally linked to the club. So yeah. where there was strong relationships, it wasn't a formal, we are one club, yes. um, which I, I think was, was definitely a challenge. Um, six of your players at Doncaster were selected to play internationally. That must have been huge personal pride for you. Yeah, it's it was huge. I think by the by the time I'd left, we had nine, uh, which wow. was huge. From firstly from my own, I guess personal development, working with that caliber of player was unbelievable. Um, it was sort of a sometimes a bit of a champagne problem when the international window came up and you'd lose nine of your players <laughs> and you were only left with nine and two or three might be injured so you think you're right I'll do a session with six players um so you know we we were real we had um players playing across the home nations um and we had a player playing for Iceland as well um so it was interesting to see how each association um worked with their players as well yes um a lot of sport is is about uh, man, man management, getting the, the most out of your players. How do you go about that, and how important is psychology? Huge, absolutely huge. So I think that's the difference at the top end of the game. Um, I think that man management is an interesting one because while there there needs to be you know a certain um, constant values that are aligned through everything that you do. You've got to bend and flex through personalities and particularly when I was managing, I, I called it a hybrid model. So we had 
can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but we had so many players that were full-time. We had some players that were part-time that were managing a full-time job and full-time playing and their work would be flexible to try and release them. We had some that wow. were studying, some that were at college and some that would just do two nights a week because their work couldn't support them. So trying to manage every single player in the same way didn't work. But the challenge was is that we were in a fully full-time professional league. So you can already see some of the um, conflicts that, that we probably had to deal with. Um, and I guess what sometimes we got it wrong sometimes we got it wrong do we did we bend and flex too much for some of the players did we um was it too actually too rigid because they needed that extra support so i think it's really important um to appreciate everyone's um circumstances and then you've got all these talent very talented individuals but you've got to mold them into a single unit and that must be that must be tough too yeah i think that that's one of those so i i guess it's one of those where you've got to have that individual, as a manager, that individual relationship with every single player that involves an element of trust. Now, the hard thing about trust is that that takes time to develop. Now, to develop trust with no time and in a high-pressure situation um, is challenging. To then develop trust across the team when, you know, at the time when I was managing, results weren't going our way. And what I can wholeheartedly and confidently say is that we had a really um, strong sense of who we were. We had really strong values and we had that element of trust, which I think is in the later stages, and particularly, you know, I did the six months in WSL 1, when we were in WSL 2, that's what got us our success because a lot of the players stayed because they knew that we were developing them as people and as players. Mm -hmm. And I've got to ask this, what's your half-time team talk style like? <laughs> well, that depends. <laughs> Do you bark? Do you bite? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say I'm a barker. Um, I'm, I'm massive on player development and even in a results-driven environment, I, I'm development-focused. Whether that's right or wrong, some people would disagree. Um, I've probably only gone into the changing rooms once and, and barked and I think it was one of those where um, I'd come in and I'd sort of hit the table and I'm thinking, that's not me, what, what am I doing? I've really hurt my hand as well. <laughs> um, so I, I'd try and go down the line of, um, it's easy to describe what's happened. The challenging bit at halftime when you've got 15 minutes is to um, help the players, not just, is to understand what's happened and give them a way to solve that problem or help them solve that problem. So how I used to structure halftime team talks is first five minutes, I'd have five minutes where the players were on their own. We'd have a couple of members of staff, medical team or the, the S&C coach in there who would get a feel for the changing room. So they would come out and say, you know, the girls are, are not happy or, you know, they're fine. So I could then sense the mood. So then I could go in depending on what, on what tone. And then we'd split them up into smaller groups, do some technical work and then bring them all together. And it was very much related to the game and problem solving rather than a, a barking orders. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot to get through in 15 minutes. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> How much did your own playing career shape your managerial style? A lot. So I've, I've been really fortunate that I had some really good coaches. Um, I've also been unfortunate that I've had some coaches that just didn't connect with me and I wouldn't say they were bad coaches they just didn't connect with me as a player um, so I was a player that I, I really wanted to learn I really wanted everything to be like the game so um, you know whether it be I started this when I was about 15 every session that I was in as a player that I liked I used to write down because I knew I wanted to go into coaching so I used to go well, I'll write this down because I might use it when I start doing a team I've still got them now 
it's quite interesting flicking through. That shows um, real intent, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I say, it was one of those things where I, um, I, I knew from a young age I wanted to be a coach. So I, and it was my dad's advice: anytime there's a good session, just jot it down, steal it, because nothing in coaching's new. It's just sort of borrowed and, and adapted. Um, so yeah, it was. It's one of those things where I guess my person, my management style has to reflect my personality. Um, but there's also elements of things that I just don't think players want or, or like. Um, so many children uh, dream of being a football star or, or a pop star, pop idol. Um, and it's great to dream uh, and it's great to have ambitions, but how can young people temper their ambition with realism about their talent and whether they're likely to make it or not? Yeah, see, I, th I think that's an interesting one because I, I, I believe that anything is possible. Um, so. I remember being at school in, I think it was year nine, and they do like a careers day where you get given a, you pick a job and then you get given a salary and you have to work out your mortgage payments and everything. I'm sure, I'm sure kids still do it now. And I was like, I want to be a football coach. I remember the teacher saying, pick something more realistic. And I'm thinking, well, my dad's a football coach. I know other full-time football coach. I don't understand why that's not realistic. Yes. Um, so I, I was sort of had challenges from that sense. Um, but at that time I was actively going out sort of with my dad and, and coaching and there was lots of barriers I had to break down. So I didn't drive when I started coaching. So I used to cycle, I used to cycle 15 miles a day to coach, Gosh. which was, I used to sort of, this was, so at college, I used to cycle to college, do my college, cycle to a school, go and do like a session. Granddad would pick me up and take me to training. When I was at university, I used to, I used to live in Headingley and Leeds. So I used to cycle into town to do some work then cycle back across to Beckett University, to cycle back across to the other side of town to do a coaching session. So I think it's one of those where, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, I'm, I was always a, a bit like a bad smell with people in terms of if I got introduced to someone from a coaching capacity, I used to just pepper them with questions. How did you get into it? What did you do? What's your favorite thing about coaching? Can I come watch your work? And that's how I met Julie. And there's, there's a bloke called Gary Waddington who was similar and they sort of took me under their wing and threw putting myself out there and asking if I could come watch them work, that then led them to say, well, do you want to do a session? Which then led to some feedback, which then eventually led to a paid job. So one hand sort of fed the other in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, in September 2017, Emma was selected by the FA to come and work with their youth teams to develop and deliver a comprehensive world-leading strategy, including team tactics and individual technicalities. Could you just unpick that a bit for us? What does that, what does that mean in in real life <laughs> <laughs> um, so my uh, so when I first joined I, I was um, I, I joined the role as a national specialist coach which was um, working with head coaches or working with squads on specific parts, parts of the game now the role quickly evolved and changed because the um, the, the teams went into full single age bands so my role now is a uh, head coach which you know involves finding uh, or working with the talent ID team in terms of have we got the you know the players that we deem um, are either the most talented or have most room to develop and you know could we think could play at the world stage or uh, senior international level it's about working with clubs to support the player development it's about bringing them in on camps and working with a, a full multidisciplinary team so we go on camp we've got 11 members of staff working with 
with the squad of players. Um, so it's about working with those experts to make sure that what we're doing with the players is going to hopefully prepare them to win World Cups at, at the senior level. So how big a step up was it from Doncaster to, to the national squad? Um, it was a bizarre, it was a really strange change. Um, so obviously when I was at Doncaster, it was a full-time role. I was also head of football at university. So again, I was coaching, I was on the grass coaching maybe 18 hours a week with two games a week. Um, I then come into the international setup and there's a lot less grass time. So I was, wasn't coaching as much, but the uh, the... I guess the focus on the planning and the detail was something that really challenged me at the start um, and something that was a little bit different because before I was sort of go, go, go all the time, whereas this was more was about, I guess, delivering it when it mattered when the players were on camp. Right. Uh, describe the setup at the FA for us. Uh, yeah, so it's a, so it's a large setup, um, huge compared to sort of any other club or organisation that I'd been in. Um, so this year we've gone single age bandings for um, for the squads. So every um, youth team has a as a full time dedicated head coach, and within that team we've we've got specialists within certain areas. So we work in a multidisciplinary team. So we've got expert uh, physical performance coaches, an expert medical team, um, analysis. Um, so we, we've we've got that for every team dedicated. The senior team is obviously um, works really closely um, with the upper phase, which is the phase that I'm in. So we've got a phase lead, which is Mo Marley. There's myself and Rianne Skinner that work within that phase, and our job is to prepare the players so that when they go up to fill, hopefully they're uh, they're prepared to deliver. <laughs> Wonderful. And what are you learning from Phil? Um, all sorts. So his his winning mentality for me and his his. Um, how would I describe it? His sense of um, every little detail and relentlessness to his his approach to things, I think, as you can tell, that's I well, I'm assuming that's a product of his time at Manchester United, um, and you can really see that drive and that competitiveness in him, and I think that's um, you know coming across in the girls as well. Now. Um the, the girls' football is, is clearly already very strong internationally. Uh, in 2015, the Women's World Cup, England were placed third. Mm -hmm. um, can we do better than that in 2019? <laughs> That's a bold comment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I think, I think the game's in a really good place. I think the whole setup at the minute is we've got a lot of the, the right people in the right places. Obviously, Phil's now got his staff in place. He's got his assistant, his goalkeeping. Uh, coach, he's now had time under his belt um, to get the players playing the way he wants. They played some exciting stuff as well. Um, I think it's it's a hard call to make. Um, I know the the groups get announced February times. So I think February when you can have a look at and size the opposition up and you know get to know what the squad's going to look like. Um, but I think I think we're going to do well. I th I'm going to put my hat on. I think we'll top three finish again at least. Great. So this is the first season that Man United have had a women's team. Why do you think it's taken so long for one of the biggest clubs in the world to have a women's team? And what are your thoughts on the changing shift around women's football? So I think, is it Arsenal that removed the ladies and it's just the team? Yeah. Um, and also, I think, with, there are stories about Barcelona and, and other squads making, making changes to 
well I, I guess for the for the benefit of women's football overall yeah I think first I think there's, there's there seems to be a whole shift just in society and in culture mm-hmm. in general towards that um, equality stand but obviously we're, we're nowhere near yet but there's certainly a lot of a lot of improvement um, I think from from a club's point of view I think it's, it's the game was quite fragile um, there wasn't much um, investment um, there wasn't much media attention and you know I guess it's a what what comes first the chicken or the egg does the, does the club get involved to hopefully um, invest and get it to that place or do they get involved when it's already at that place um, and I think what's really exciting is that now I guess men's clubs are excited about the game they're you know having this one club philosophy this one club mindset um, my fear is that I, I'd still believe that the women's game needs to have its own personality, its own authentic- authenticity and can't just be a carbon copy of the men's game because it's different for so many different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, you know, we've looked at clubs in the past, Fulham, Charlton, who were heavily reliant financially on the men's clubs and all that all that takes is a new chairman to come in and there's yeah. a lot of money lost. So it's one of those where I actually think the slow progression is quite healthy and I think it just allows the game to evolve naturally um, and hopefully now you know we've we've been it's a bit like a, a plane taking off I think we've been you know taking off and getting up to altitude and I think the important thing now is that we just steady the ship we are sustainable and clubs can show they're sustainable and that the league is sustainable and hopefully that means that we're creating better players and hopefully better England teams as well. <laughs> And do you see yourself as England manager one day? <laughs> um, I'm not sure, if I'm honest. I'd, I'd, I'd like to say yes. Um, you know, I, I think growing up, if you'd have said, what's your dream? I'd have probably said to be England manager. Mm-hmm. Um, I always said when I was growing up, I wanted to work in football full time by the time I was 30. And sometimes I've got to just slow myself down and go, actually, what I've achieved, I'm, I'm 27 now, so what I've achieved by the age of 27, I think, um, really good and I'm already ahead of schedule so I think not looking too far in the future is probably a good thing for me right now um, and obviously really happy my current role <laughs> <laughs> So this podcast works in partnership with Speakers for Schools the charity that provides world class talks from inspiring leaders to schools all over the UK what advice do you have for young people entering the world of football? Um, I think the first one would be around perspective I think there's a whole culture around football that it's the most important thing in the world Mm. now I love football and it's shaped my life my family's life hugely Um, but the first thing is that when you put things into perspective you know whether it's a a bad game a bad loss Mm. is when you take a step back is you know it's not a matter of life and death which is how some people take it Um, and I think the other one would be just to go and get involved and give it a go because while from a female point of view the game's getting bigger I still think that from you know um, children that have been raised, there's still sort of a stigma that it's still a boys' game. So I think one would be around again parents putting it into perspective on the games for everyone and getting involved and giving it a go. <laughs> what qualities do you think um, young players need to succeed? Um, good question. <laughs> so I think again that's a that's one where there's so many different facets to what makes a player a talented player um, obviously there's the, the technical skills there's a physical profile I think the difference that makes a good player to a great player is their willingness to learn 
their resilience to um, tough times, mm. their ability to work hard, um, and their ability, um, I think as well, to drive their own development. I think there's a there's a real danger in a world that everything's so instantly available that people become a little bit entitled, like hard work doesn't matter. Um, and I think in sport in particular, that's certainly not the case. <laughs> Is resilience something that can be taught or do you only build resilience through mistakes and getting things wrong? I think you can only build it through getting it wrong. I think everyone um, knows what resilience is. I think people are reluctant to put themselves in those you know, challenging situations or those situations that are tough um, because they are hard and the, you know, the easy thing is, is when you're in those situations is to almost quit mm. and but actually if you persevere what you'll take from those moments I know from I think the reason why um, I am the way that I am is because I've had a lot of lows I've had a lot of times where times have been tough and that's I've learned more from that than I have the good times and lastly the question we ask all of our guests if you could have one person from history to join your <laughs> team who would they be and why yeah so I've been thinking a lot about this so is this from a, a player to join the team or someone to join the coaching team? Ooh. <laughs> Maybe one of each. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one of each, right, okay. Um, I think from a, from a player's perspective, there's, there's a couple of things. So for me growing up, there was one person that I admired and that was Kelly Smith. Mm -hmm. I mean, what she could do on the pitch was, was unbelievable. Her stories is fascinating as well. So, you know, I'd love her to come and join the team and play. But I'd also really like to you know, bring someone like Lily Power back who, you know, was playing in the twenties, who, you know, during the war when women's football was really popular and then actually seeing what the game's become and what people like that have have been able to achieve for sort of my generation or for younger players. Um I guess from a from a manager's point of view, um I'm not I'm not really sure um who I'd want from a coaching point of view, but I'd love to sit down in a room with John Wooden um and just understand and you know, for someone of, of his time to be so forward thinking with lots of his ideas, I'd love to just sit and unpick his unpick his mind really. <laughs> Wonderful. Emma Coates, thank you very much for joining us for breakfast. Cheers, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Breakfast with the Boss. It was recorded at Fleet Street Studio with Vox Media Limited. For links to all our other episodes, follow us on Twitter at Breakfast with the Boss, or if you hit subscribe, you'll never miss an episode again. Until next time, goodbye.